The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is music producer and performer Dan Dare. Dan grew up in West London and was involved in gang culture and serious crime from an early age before throwing himself into music. He quickly earned a solid reputation in the industry and has worked with numerous major artists worldwide and most recently co-wrote and produced Head and Heart, which is a current UK number one by Joel Corey and MNEK as of July 2020. We talk about Dan's tough upbringing and how that shaped his worldview. His music career, including his phenomenal solo output under the name Slang, and how Dan expresses himself through his music with honesty and vulnerability about his own mental health battles. You'll also hear about Dan's experiences with celebrity dating app Raya. We discussed his true definition of being a strong person and as always, there's plenty more. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. It always helps. Cheers. Dan Dare, when I listen to your music, aside from being blown away by the brilliance of it, I see somebody who's very confident but very vulnerable, who beneath bravado and a learned toughness is very, very sensitive and thoughtful and who finds his deepest meaning in life and personal therapy through expressing himself in his music. Have I got that right, or am I a wee bit inaccurate there? Spot on. <laughs> and then very that, that, conclu- <laughs> that, that concludes the interview. Thanks very much for joining me. I've nailed it in one. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll get into that, and, and I suppose the way that we'll get into that is we'll go through your segments and phases of your life but we'll start with with the beginning so you grew up in south hall west london you said mum was a cleaner dad was a gangster that's obviously a very interesting life to say the least well yeah i mean south hall itself was a really interesting place it's a melting pot of cultures and um yeah just humans and 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 everything there was a huge heroin epidemic when i was growing up um mm. that i got caught up in from selling drugs and seeing my uh, my best friends that all their parents being drug addicts and they were all it, when we were growing up they're all normal people in my eyes because that's all i knew um so yeah it was definitely a unique experience of, of growing up and p- seeing things that were were considered like horrific to other people was so normal to us mm. um but it's literally all we knew. We, did, we didn't have the internet then. We didn't have Instagram. We didn't have like the, what we saw and, and and went through was just in our area, and we wasn't educated about being normal at school. It was so, it was so such a weird mm. weird thing. <clears throat> There's um, one of the things is people around you are like robbed of their potential. You could have been robbed of your potential. You know, yeah. other other obviously being somebody who's creative and you see you don't come from a musical family, but you're obviously yeah. very musically minded. Did you see potential in other people? Do you think there's others that oh, could have? Dude, 
so many people. Every single one of my friends, so sharp, so talented, especially with football. I had a, I had a lot of friends that when we were growing up um, were unbelievably talented footballers. You know, we all played academy football. We all played at a, a high standard as a youth team. And then we just got into crime and got into things that didn't really matter, like girls and trying to be a bad boy and all these other things that you go through as a teenager in your in your adolescence. Um, that yeah, there was a few. There was a guy who went, I went to school with called Albert Adoma. He played for Ghana in the World Cup, and he wow. and he he played for he played for Aston. He got promoted with Aston Villa, and um, he like I his bro, his brother went to jail with with my cousin for twelve years. Um, for like a like a, a really bad crime, and I and mm. Albert had all all the drive in the world, and he was at school. He was an amazing like cage footballer. We'd play like street football. He was a major in that street football, but he we never really saw him as like a great footballer. He wasn't in our eyes thinking that's Albert. He's gonna make it. He just had the drive, mm. and he stuck to it. Um, and yeah, he played in the World Cup. It was it was mind blowing. All of us were like, wow, this is this is a this is crazy. Um. And same in music, there was a lot of really talented MCs and grime MCs and rappers that were really talented, but they were too caught up in the street life. So eventually, mm -hmm. that took over when they went to prison or they got caught up in the wrong crowd. What what separated you? Why didn't you succumb eventually to to those pitfalls? Was something quite pivotal happened, didn't it? When you were sixteen, did you kind of get a second chance of sorts? Or uh, I got arrested with a gun when I was fifteen. Uh, and then it was a massive eye opener for me because I'd been arrested when I was younger for like street robberies and and robbing shops and like bookies and all this kind of like stuff that to me was just like it was just like it was it was fun and games but it was so bad I didn't realize how how bad it was when it was affecting people you don't mm -hmm. realize that until you grow up a little bit and you're just like shit I did I I did some some horrible things and didn't realize I was affecting people. And then when I got caught with a gun, the police, they stormed into this youth centre and they pinned me on the floor with guns to my head. And to me, that was just like, shit, Dan, this really isn't fun and games. You know, this you need to mm. really like wake up and start being responsible. And and yeah, my, after that happened, my mum uh, said to me, look, we're moving away from the area. You know, we you either stay here and be become homeless or yeah, or you, or you move with us to the countryside. And that's what mm -hmm. happened. It was it was my mum. She gave us an ultimatum, me and my brothers and my family, and was like, "Look, we have to get out of it." So that was huge. Yeah, it's it's obviously very easy to to condemn, especially if you're you're say middle class or upper class, to look at that and just say, "Ah, oh, animals are scum." But there yeah. are so many factors to it. I mean, do you think that with, I don't know, better social education or more? I don't know, could schools do more? I mean, what do you think as someone who's come out the other side of that, what do you think could be put in place to stop people getting to that point of, you know, having a fucking gun held to their head in a youth club? That's just wild. Yeah. Um, to be honest, uh, a lot of it was coming from my home life. My school didn't do enough. They definitely didn't do enough, but they were doing as much as they probably could because it was a terrible school. I mean, mm -hmm. we had we had like youth workers and uh, people always used to come around our house and like social workers and stuff like that because they knew stuff was going on at home because it would come out in my schooling, you know? So I was always, always in the bottom class at school despite being really like 
emotionally intelligent and having my own kind of like intelligence. I wasn't academically mm-hmm. smart, but I could outsmart a lot of people because I don't know, my upbringing was just, I had to be street smart and aware and my skills were totally different. Um, mm-hmm. And and to be honest, my mum did as much as she could. She was working three jobs and my dad was in and out of prison. So I couldn't say, mum, you let us down. My dad definitely let us down, but he, he is who he is, you know, he wasn't going to change anytime soon. So mm-hmm. um, I, I definitely suffered. My bro- my older brother has been in and out of prison his whole life and has been in that world for, for as long as I can remember. Um, so he and my eldest brother suffers with really bad mental health. So we, everyone kind of suffered a little bit, but I kind of, I was lucky. I, I, I put a lot of it down to luck. I met the right people in my life that helped me, um, get to the point I wanted to be, wanted to be at. Ultimately, I didn't want to be living like that. I didn't want to be a bad boy. I didn't want to be involved in crime. I really wanted to do something with my life. Um, and my brothers didn't lack that ambition. But mm-hmm. they just they just feared that it was the fear of the unknown, you know. Um, so they just went with what they knew, and cracked on mm-hmm. in that world. Um, but yeah, I guess. And we had we had play service places we used to hang out in the community that was like unique to our uh, like our area, which definitely helped a lot, and it kept us out of crime, doing crime and um, doing things. So I, I guess yeah. the, the a short answer is yes, they did enough, but. I guess that's only what was available. No one was really talking about mental health or inner city gangs or like like back then, you know, it was like you went to your youth club and you had your youth 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 offending team or your social workers and just did what you what was in front of you. Mm-hmm. So I suppose then it must be at this point or this juncture where you start getting involved in music. Um for the purposes of accuracy, I'm going to pronounce it in in perfect English, but it's going to sound like the fucking uncoolest thing ever. But you're involved <laughs> then with the the gritty committee collective, the, the gritty committee. The gr- yeah. That'd be yeah in London at the gritty committee. Um, is that was that your first sort of foray into music, or is, had you been sort of experimenting before that? Yeah, we. I mean, I, my brother was a uh, was a UK garage MC, so he was on the radio. He was doing like um, pirate radio when I was like twelve, thirteen. So for that me, three, that was like. I was going to say, was that Freeze ninety two point seven? Is that? Yeah, he, yeah, he was on Freeze, and he was on a, on a, a show called uh, Ice FM. They they were like they were set up in like traveler sites, and they were like yeah. nicking the electricity through the aerials and going to the top of tower blocks, and then broadcasting <laughs> to the old area before they got shut down, kind of vibe. Um, so that was like the gateway for me into music because I don't come from a musical family. My dad, my dad, well, my mum and dad loved music, but they never once showed me to play a piano or do anything, mm. you know? So I was never encouraged. I was always encouraged to do from my, f- yeah, from my father foremost and my mum. like I wouldn't get scolded for doing bad things. So I thought they was okay to do it. So, um, mm. so yeah, I was just like, I had a real passion for making beats um, and, and grind music because that's what my, my brother was doing. Gra- garage music and grind music was the cool music around at the time. And I started in a crew called, um, what was it called? It's called Dark Side Family, which was a, a a group of guys that I met at youth clubs in the area. Um, so that was the one, there was a sense of community in that way. But it was also like going to the youth club was a whole different story. You would have to get on the bus and go through areas that you couldn't go through. Mm. And it would be just drama and people getting stabbed, people getting, it was like, so if I had that much drive to go through like all these mad areas on the bus, 
just to get to this youth youth center to do music, I thought, you know what, I've got to do this full time. And um, mm. that was around 13, 14. And um, I stood out like a sore thumb because I was only like one of a few white people, white kids that were doing it. Um, so they was used to be like the white boy, Dan, blah, 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 blah. And uh, yeah, it was, that was kind of the gateway to, well, start music. The, um, you've got such, we'll, we'll talk about your style because I've got a, a lot of thoughts and um, a lot of compliments as well because I, 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 abs, I absolutely love it. But what people will hear, because later on, dear listener, you'll hear a couple of clips as we'll discuss a few, uh, a few like lyrics and stuff. But yeah. it seems to me that you like you've got had this exposure to like grime and like rap music, but also soul music and rock and roll. Because you've said that Otis Redding yeah. and Elvis and stuff was playing your house. I grew up with the same music, yeah. and now when I, when I read you had said that, I was like, oh, "Fuck!" You can see the cross section where those two <laughs> genres have met each yeah. other, and it's like I, as a total like idiot, when it comes to you know being um, analytical about music, even I can hear yeah. that. Like it seems so obvious. Um, as you've kind of, I suppose, well, first of all, I'd like to talk about a lot of those guys that you, on that gritty committee, how posh does that sound? A lot of them ended up in prison <laughs> as well, so it just seemed as if it wasn't it wasn't enough. Like, do you feel that your drive and enjoyment for it kept you on the straight and narrow because you've got something to really move towards or is it something different? Definitely. I think um, for, the, for the guys that were involved in gritty committee, they're... I still, I still, I still know them. I still see them. Um, I guess it, it was just we wanted different things from our lives. We all wanted to be successful, um, definitely. And the guys were—they're all really talented. But I guess, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to get more into like a professional manner of doing music, um, and the way that the grime scene used to operate. We used to operate in the grime scene, which was very unprofessional. Um, so I was like, I need to get out and start using all my experience and like a raw street sound and try and give mm. that to the to the pop artists and try and make a make a living that way. Cause I was I was done like selling drugs and like doing stupid things. I was like, I just can't do this. It's just the young man's game and it's just like being a bad boy's dead, you know? It's like mm-hmm. I don't want to be that guy. Um and I was never inclined to be that guy. I don't want to be a bad person, you know. I I always like to think I had a good heart. Um so, yeah, I just thought I, I got to crack on and, and find the right way to do it. And I met a guy called Zed Dot, um, who's, a, who's, a, who's a producer, and we started making beats together. He lived close to where I was living. He was living in Hanwell, which was the nicer part of town, and I was mm-hmm. living in Southall. And I was like, oh, you know, it's really easy for me to link up with this guy. And then he subsequently went on to produce like Stormzy, Where Do You Know Me From? And a load of big Wiley tracks and loads of like pivotal songs in, in, in Grimes history, like with Stormzy coming through with that and stuff like that. Um, so we was all, I was always around like good people who pushed me to a, to a high level, which, mm-hmm. I, which I'm very blessed for and, and very grateful for, which I didn't know at the time was happening. You know, I just kind of went with my gut uh, and that's where it led me. You, you've kind of moved on then from that underground scene and into mainstream music via succession of collaborations with like Wiley. Now we'll yeah. sidestep, 
we'll sidestep the controversy that Wiley's engulfed in for now because it will only derail wow. our conversation. I mean, I have to bring yeah. it up, like I have to ask a question, but as I say, I'll I'll leave that for later. Um, yeah. But your first release as a producer was a collaboration with Wiley, Giggs, Zed Dot, somebody else as well? Yeah, Joel Santana, who was a big American rapper at the time. He was like, yeah. he was billboard level of of, uh, of rapper. Um, and yeah, it was that, that was a massive thing for me, but... And it was that all come through Wiley actually. So I like I owe a lot to Wiley, um, in a, in the first part of my career. He really helped me. He was, um, yeah, he was really influential in making me realize that I could do this full time because he mm. he believed in me so much, and he believed in Z dot so much that we thought, you know what, um, we we have you know we have to crack on and really learn our learn our craft. And we was working with a guy called Rhymes at the time. We had a production team called the Elite. It was me, Zed, and Rhymes. Rhymes went off and he's produced like huge hits for Steph Don and French Montana and all the big UK mm. artists and acts. And he produced Wiley's number one, the, uh, the Heat Wave. So that all comes from like a magical kind of energy that we had together when we mm. were, were working in a studio in Leroy Street in Bermondsey. And then everyone kind of went off and started doing their own thing. And everyone's gone on to have success. So it's been, it's been good. Um, yeah, that that must do a hell of a lot for your self esteem. Obviously, coming from where you come from, what you've been up to, and then all of a sudden you're you're creating something which is, it's mainstream, it's legitimate, it's making money, it's respected, it's in, it's in these nice surroundings of studios. I mean, did you start to see yourself differently, or is was there maybe a bit of conflict where you're caught between the new you and the old you? Like, how's that? You know what? It's still, it's, I still feel like that 16-year-old kid in my mind, you know. It didn't do anything for my self-esteem. I, still, I know that sounds mad. It just gave me more purpose. Um, mm. I didn't suddenly grow an ego and was like, I'm the man, I'm going to do this, I'm the man. I was just like, oh, that's good. You know, this is actually working out. Mm. Um, and I was just, it was kind of like the dog chasing the car, you know. The, the car was still going and I was still chasing the can behind the car. Mm. And I didn't want the car to stop. And... Um, yeah, it's a wee bit. It's a wee bit of. It's quite. It's endearing though, because it's a bit of imposter syndrome that we yeah. all suffer from. Well, it's like you just feel some, somebody's going to tap your shoulder and be like, "Mate, what the fuck are you doing here?" Like, yeah. get out. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, I mean, from there, like, so you, I mean, you've worked with. We'll talk about in terms of production and writing. Yeah. Because so, for anyone who's unaware, you know, for the first ten years or so of your career, you're very much a producer and a writer um, yeah. and you know made your name as a producer with some big names like Marina and the Diamonds Rex 3-2 Mario Charlie XCX who, who am I missing out there Newton Faulkner uh, yeah there's loads there's loads of like big European acts as well that did like a lot of numbers on the songs and stuff like I, mm. I had a, a few number ones as a producer on artists uh, on albums sorry never had a number right. one single until the Joel record but uh, yeah. I've been doing stuff on albums and yeah, I, I've always, I never really, because a lot of the time I didn't really want to like conform to the pop world. I had this thing where I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm earning enough money. I'm doing enough. I want to really work on my sound of what I do and just try and make my own legacy. You know, I, I, I was getting in the room with big people, so I could have gone and done like big pop records and, and produce something that sound like something on the radio. And I guess that's a yeah. lot of the time where I failed with the managers that I had because they were like, right, you have something that's good, but you need to be doing it like this. And I was like, I wasn't conforming. I was like, 
yeah, like the imposter in the room, I'm like an imposter coming in that's trying to like mm-hmm. give everyone my sound and what I was doing. And I guess that's that's where I failed a lot of times to make the, the get singles with these guys. But I got album tracks, you know, where I was like, okay, this is good, and what you're writing is is, is unique. Do you think that that sort of ins- uh, encouraged act, uh, you know acts and performers to want to work with you? Because like I said, with your with your music, it's I would call it unpredictable i would call it it's not formulaic it's like the antithesis of formulaic pop music you know where it's like okay segment one two three yeah. and there we go we've got we've we've got a hit it seems to be the opposite of that but then do you think that there's there's a lot of personality in it is what i'm trying to say where i'm like yeah. now if i heard something i could be like oh i know that's that's dance does that encourage acts to work with you yeah, I mean, at the time it did. I mean, because we did a girl called Siren who was signed to Black Butter. She was like touted to be like the next biggest thing. And like the music we did with her was great. And before the whole rudimental craze, we all shared mm. a studio. So it was me, M and EK when he was like 16 years old. I've known M and EK for like 10 years now. Uh, mm-hmm. And rudimental, we all had this, it was rudimental studio, which we, we were leasing a room from them because our manager, Nick Worthington at the time, a guy from 679, who was really, he signed like Streets, Marina and the Diamonds, all those guys. He was wow. great. And um, I was really blessed to have him as a manager. And um, yeah, he saw he saw a lot in me and Zed Dot that we didn't see in ourselves. And um, he was it, it was hard trying to get us to a point where we believed in ourselves and what we were doing. And eventually like we, let, we stopped working with him as a manager and then went on to do the things that he was trying to get us to do, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. but I guess it was just too early and we had to go through all those things to get where we are today. today. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, we were, we were doing cool beats and we were beat makers, you know, we wasn't really writers then. Um, Mm -hmm. and I guess that's, that's what it was. We were making beats and we didn't approach stuff from a writing standpoint where I, I, I had it in me. I, I believed I could do it, but I wasn't confident enough to speak up in the room and be like, Oh, I think you should change that word or I think this melody is cool. Uh and I think that that was a part of the problem. With I suppose what I have to mention before we talk about you performing, obviously right now you co-wrote and co-produce Hand and Heart, which is the current UK number one with Joel Corey yeah. uh, Cor- and MNE case you just mentioned. I mean, yeah. first of all, that is an that is an unbelievable achievement. You know, something that you've worked on is now being played in cars and homes and clubs and bars so all weird. around the country. Yeah. I mean, how, how does that feel? Uh, to be honest, I struggled with it the first week. I know there was a lot going on, but it was so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. My mind was just, I really struggled. Like my mental health was so bad during that week. I was like, what is going on? I suddenly had a big record and like, I feel all this pressure and all this kind of, it's like a release, you know, it's like I said, it's like the dog chasing the car with it, with a can and it stops. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, rah, I've been trying to do this for the last 15 years of my life, you know? Um, so it was a really strange experience. It was great. I'm really grateful. And as it's like soaked in more of it's become, uh, it's, it's filled me with, with a lot more, but it was really mm-hmm. strange on the first week. I, I was, I was, I was, uh, it was weird. I was struggling. I didn't, and I didn't know why. It's like in everybody's eyes, you're the. It's like, oh, look at this guy, overnight success, you're number one. When really, yeah. obviously, you've been you've been doing it for fifteen years. That causes stress in itself. It's fucking annoying. It's just like suddenly <laughs> now, my music sounds better in your ears because I've got a number one. 
It's like, yeah. and that is just, and you know what? It's the name of the game. I'm fully aware of that. It's just sometimes mm-hmm. you just need time, time to decompress and understand it a little bit more, and that's that's what I've been doing. Been doing. Yeah, to process it. Um, yeah. To to go to go back to you. Um, mm. You've then you've not that long ago, or after about ten years anyway. Yeah. You decided to start performing. First yeah. of all, how how does that crossover come out? Did you just feel you had a lot to express? Was it? Do you feel it was a natural progression? At the time, I mean, I was just more pissed off about what was going on in the music industry, um, mm. because I, like I said before, I've been I've been going into the rooms and trying to do my own thing that I thought was right, and it, nothing really connecting. There was a few songs that were on albums, like I said, and I was getting paid, but it wasn't enough really for how much time I was putting into into the product. And it came, it came at the kind of the end of a relationship that was really toxic in my life. And um, I, when I entered that relationship, I'd signed a publishing deal and I had some money. And I, we had got a house and we was all set up nicely. I was living in Alex, Alexandra Palace. I'd never lived so well in my life. And I was like, this is this is great. But the person I was with had like narcissistic tendencies and it just just made the noise in my head so loud and I was suffering mm. so much and kind of music becomes secondary. And I kind of lost my passion for doing the things that I loved in writing and producing for people. Uh, and I was like, I need to like, I need my own little bit of therapy. So I started writing, writing slang songs. Slang, slang was born. Um, I had always done, you know, a f- few bits here and there that I, I just did personally because I, I loved emceeing and writing lyric with melody uh and the first song actually yay you're right yeah that was that was written in like i think 2015 way before even slang was a thing just had mm-hmm. it on the computer and written with ryan and toby who were my housemates at the time who are in slang the band um and that was just sitting there and then i and i basically come out of that relationship i was homeless and i was living on like couches and i was living in ryan's van and my brother, um, how do I put this in the right way? Uh, my brother had a house that he was using for things. And right. uh, and he goes, look, if you're homeless, I've got this house. It's all you need to pay is, I think it was like 200 quid a month each for three of us. No, two of us or three of us. Um, it was the, honestly, the, the, the the day we moved into this house, the police raided the house uh, and they like kicked off the doors. It was just a mental situation, but it was all we had because we were homeless. I was like, mm-hmm. this is better than living on the streets. Um, and then the second day, the bailiffs come trying to climb through the window. And then the, it was just like, it was we wasn't supposed to be there basically. And the people mm-hmm. that were supposedly there were criminals and involved in all sorts. So it was like, the police thought that we was up to no good and we all we was doing was, was trying to find somewhere to live. So we kind of locked ourselves away there because it was in a really strange area and all we had to do was music. And yeah, and I said to Ryan, Ryan Keane, I was just like, who, who's an amazing artist himself and very blessed to have him as, as a best friend and and a collaborator. Um, we used to just sit down and write these songs and that's where the first song like sweet lies and the fir- all the first dp what happened to you grown um altercations they were all born in in this in this crack house basically it was a crack house mm-hmm. um 
and we had a had a little setup there and we was like cool wrote this music send it to parlophone i knew a guy from parlophone at the time all i said to him in the email the email was is this your cup of tea and a soundcloud link nothing else no other info uh half an hour later he's ringing my phone saying this is amazing do you need to come into the office and that's kind of how it happened and i was like shit this whole time i've been writing music for other people and actually what i have to say people want to listen to or mm -hmm. labels at least yeah no i would say so i mean we we you all right yeah uh as i would call it raw yeah. heartfelt but also like see, the, if you remove the lyrics right because the lyrics are incredible but if you have just the beat like just the melody it's incredible what i'm going to do is i'll play a wee segment of it so people can hear it yeah. and then they can sort of see where i'm coming from so here is yeah brackets you all right yeah yeah i know we don't play the same games we don't walk the same roads we don't have the same rules but love is all that i know we don't have the same dads my mom brought us up on our own and i only hear your voice at the end of the phone this shit is getting old but it's one for the money and it's two for the show but three's the crowd but i'll be alone tonight One for the money and it's two for the show But freeze the crowd so I'll be alone tonight Are you alright? Yeah Are you alright? Yeah So that was You Alright Yeah um, Which was the, that was your, your first release? Was that the original release? Yeah that was the first release and the first song recorded as slang, actually. I mean, I, I'm kind of stating the obvious here, but I take it you're just going back to to memories or thoughts that you're drawing on what had happened in the past yeah. to, to then take you there? Yeah, it was just a raw song. I was just feeling a certain type of way that day. I was just yeah. We were talking about our past because I, I used to sweep a lot of it under the rug before I knew about, like, depression and anxiety and mental health i just used to kind of cage it up and my i was my two friends ryan and toby are very open and they speak a lot about mm -hmm. their emotions and stuff and for me that was huge you know and that really helped me as a human being to have like an open dialogue and that and that kind of led to writing slang music really it's obviously it's very it's very honest. It's very self-reflected. Um, I think people often forget that people know you and people will listen to it, you know, when they hear a song. So how was that received by people close to you? Um, you know, it's because it's very, very yeah. um, honest. I mean, yeah, for, uh, even for my mum and my dad, like my mum and my dad didn't fully understand me doing music until like, I don't know, maybe even since the Joel Corey record come out. Because they, they, the way they measure stuff is like, are you making money from it? Are you doing this? Are you living? It's just like, you mm -hmm. can't explain to your mum and dad. But yeah, and explaining to my mum and my mum and mostly my mum about like going through depression and she's gone through all that her own life, you know, she's suffered massively her whole life. Um, so to hear that her son has gone through that and she was unaware of it, where I was kind of trying to deal with it myself. But she, it, mm. it was un, like inevitable she was going to hear it because my sisters heard the song and they played it to my mum. And my mum got really upset and she was like, oh, I didn't realise all of this stuff. And I was like, 
yeah, I'm just trying to deal with it as a man, you know, like a man would. I'm trying to take on the, take all the weight on my shoulders. Uh, and mm. I'm, I'm sorry I didn't tell you, but this, this is this is the situation. But yeah, it was. I think it was a massive eye opener for my close family, definitely, because um, they they're still in. I would say like, yeah, they don't really like to talk about stuff. You know, they just mm. they just get on with life. They just crack on. Because I think if they open the can of worms, a lot of worms will come out and don't really know how to deal with it. I get that. Like, I totally get that. I've been there as well. Um, it's mm. taken me um, until about less than a year ago to realise that even if it's just something small, if something's sort of a thought is swirling around in your head and it's bothering you, yeah. it's going to eventually become a very heavy weight but if you can expel it if you can speak it uh, you've said before even if you can't speak it then write it down but expressing yeah. it then it removes it from your brain because it has to go somewhere and all these even if they're just loads of small things all yeah. these then accumulate and they all add up and they all gather weight and space in your mind that could be used for for better things you can't be creative you can't solve problems you can't I don't know, operate in your highest capacity if okay. you are yeah, giving your energy to it, it could be bullshit, it could be just a silly argument. Um the I even had thing. one Yeah. Yeah, mate, I had one I, I made an admission at dinner with my family um the other week that had fucking haunted me for like twenty odd years and I'll tell it in a nutshell. So there was a, a wee boy in my street who had I must have been like I would have been seven, right? And he had learning difficulties. Yeah, and you know, like I was, we were all out playing, and I, I was hiding behind a wall, and he, he walked past, and I went ran, like gave him a fright. Yeah, and he had this look of pure terror, and he was really <laughs> upset. And I've never felt so bad in my life. And then I was like, please don't tell on me, like I'll buy you sweets from the ice cream yeah. bar and all that kind of thing. But the the like the actual look on his face, I've always honestly felt so bad and I swear to God that it's like this is one of a billion things I've carried around with me my whole life Yeah, and then I expressed like I just said it I was like I just wanted to admit that and I feel terrible and I always have and now I just haven't thought about it anymore and it's, it sounds that's, ridiculous that's, you hit the nail on the head there it's, and the thing with, with pain and experience they're all variable like the the, the pain you might have felt from that and the, and the like it might have haunted you for so long I know that sa might sound ridiculous because you're just scaring someone but it's the same thing. I, I had this conversation with someone where I was like, look, I've seen a crackhead jump out the 14th floor of a tower block, hit the floor mm. and splatter and look at that person and be like, that was fucked up and just get on with my life. Yeah. People might have lost their hamster and they might have felt the same way, the same amount of pain or same amount of... As like You can't really measure it because everyone's different and everyone's uh, experiences are totally unique mm. to their environment, you know? Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big thing. With the music, and we'll go on and we'll discuss another couple of tracks, um, yeah. and but more so the intention and the meaning behind it. Um, yeah. Obviously, your family will have, will have reacted to what they've heard, but what about the wider public? Because I've listened to those tracks and I went, oh yeah, fuck me too. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, I felt yeah. it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I've been there. Has, what sort of responses have been from from fans listening? Because I'd imagine it's something that would it would prompt people to get in touch with you. Yeah, it's always very real. That's what I'm really blessed with the, the people that love Slang's music. It's very real and, and it comes from the heart and it's, you know, people engage with the music, which is which is amazing. I get a lot of messages and I know I'm not the perfect person in the world, but I try and 
I can't reply to everyone, but I try my best to, you know, speak mm -hmm. and, yeah. and chat and become a medium. It's hard because there's so many messages, but I always, I'm always at shows speaking to people after the shows about if they want to talk about this song and how it affected them. Like so many people have been like, that's changed my life. You putting that song out has like mm -hmm. made me realize so much and done it. It's just like, it's so, it make even if I can change one person's life, in, yeah. in a positive way, like not change their life, like make them whatever. It's just like, if I can affect someone positively, then that, that, that's why I love doing uh, like slang music is because it's so personal to me, but it's also like touches people in a different way to, to kind of pop music and, you know, stuff mm -hmm. they have a, have a choice of listening to. When like with, with the music, if you're discussing, this is off the top of my head. So yeah. the, the benefits of therapy, um, drug use as a coping mechanism um, yeah. the breakdown of relationships mental health depression when when you create something like that and put something like that out which is basically just an expression of your inner mind through yeah. through music do you feel do you feel vulnerable and exposed or do you feel like empowered and strengthened because i suppose that could go either way yeah the, i think the fact that uh, my mum's always been like, don't, don't ever care what people think. So I, I, me, myself, I don't give a fuck. And that, that comes through in, in my, I give a, no, you know, what? I take that back. I give a fuck about the right things. You know, I, mm -hmm. I don't care about people if they want to judge me. I mean, if they wrote a, me a long message and I read it, it would probably affect me, but I wouldn't like, I would the next day I'd be like, you know what? Bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess it's just me and me being honest with myself and, I know it starts as a small idea with me on my computer or with a guitar or a piano, but then I become attached to that. And I'm like, you know what? I really want to put this out because it, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's what I believe in. And I think it sounds good. So I want people to hear it, you know? So it's hard because I know a lot of really talented people that make music and never put it out because they always overthink it. Where me, I'm just like, I go to the studio, write the song. And I'm like, I don't care if it's good enough for that person. I just want to mm -hmm. put it out so I can, the people that it, it um resonates with they can they can listen to it and and, uh, mm -hmm. and enjoy it see i i think what you've created has it's transcended music in a way because if there's something that gets your feet your brain and like your heart going simultaneously like that's quite a rare thing and in, in my already admittedly uneducated analysis of music i would <laughs> call it like a a call it seems to me like a collage of sound because there will then be a random insert of like a vocal or um, there's a song where I think it's at the end of You All Right, yeah, where there's a sigh at the end yeah. and you're like, it's all these little subtleties. Yeah. But for me, each track has got depth that makes the Mariana Trench look like a pond. And if I can <laughs> listen to some, if I can listen to something 10 times and each time notice something else, that's that's amazing. And a, and a track um, where I think I did that was Pure. Yeah. with the one that you collaborated with, uh, Newton Faulkner. Um, the, the lyrics are powerful and I yeah, felt even, that... Yeah, it gives me goosebumps even you saying that because when I think of that song, it's just so raw and personal. It's, it is incredible. Uh, I feel like in the space of about a minute, you encapsulate what a lot of people, and I think men in particular, will be going through, dealing with the memories of like a failed relationship, yeah. uh, taking coke far too often than your brain yeah. can actually handle yeah. and then not being able to express what you're going through. Um, yeah. I take it that was just a similar expression. Yeah, dude, it was... Um, 
when when we signed signed the record deal to Parlophone, um, I kind of it was it was like one huge therapy session for me. It was like it was a perfect opportunity to just express how I'm feeling and what I've been going through and just like unloading everything. It was just unloading for me. And it was so, I know mm -hmm. it sounds mad, but it was so easy to write those songs. It, it was just, it just comes so easy. It was just like the words were done in like two, three hours because it was just, yeah. I was just, I was the medium, you know, I was the like of, of myself and I was just writing these things down and I was just like, that's cool. That rhymes with that. And it's weird how these all fit in place and blah, de, blah, de, blah. Um, and yeah, I, I then I wrote that song with Newton Faulkner's brother Toby, who was my flatmate, and um, we had wrote the the lyrics and stuff. And I said, "Look, I would love to get his brother Sam Newton." I was like, "Look, this I've, I've always loved, I've admired Sam. He's in the studio. He's incredible. He's the most ridiculously talented person. I can't even tell you. He can play every instrument. He has all the best ideas, you know." Um, and I was like, "It would be an honor to to do this to do this with your brother." And um, we we well, I call, I called his brother and I was like, "Look, dude, no pressure, but like, I would love to have you on this song." And he was like, "Come round tomorrow, we will record it." And I went mm. round his house and we just recorded it. And it was like, "Wow, this is this is amazing." And that mixtape actually had no PR or no push or nothing. All the music on there and all the numbers that it has got online has been totally organic from people that have discovered mm. it and, and and kind of bought into it. And I'm so proud of that mixtape. The Fuen's mixtape is like, honestly. I love it. I, lo I can listen to it and be like, you know what? I don't care how many listeners it had. I don't care if it has a trillion views, you know? I'm Whoever listens to it, I'm really proud that they're listening to it. I think, um, I know I'm, I'm saying this as somebody who doesn't have a dog in the fight, so it's easy for me to say, but I think there's far more value in creating something which is very personal and very real um, and, ha as you say, has a, a, deep, a deep impact on a lower amount of people as opposed yeah. to people just listening to it because it's a release and it's being pushed and it's just what's in the charts at this point. Yeah. Um, let's listen to a small part of Pure again, just so people can hear what I'm banging on about. Sure. Such a broken man since we broke up Putting coke up my nose every day You lost your dad and I wasn't there for you I think about that shit all the time Shit was so complex in my little mind I couldn't take the pressure And I thought about taking mine All the time The timing was so bad Going mad with depression I'd be coming home from sessions Egging myself on to jump When you thought I had the hump I was really just fucked up Just a kid still dealing with my issues Every tissue tells a different story We can never hate each other And for my part I'm sorry Shit, we had it set We had a house, but it was never our home Cause you made me feel like I was forever in your debt 
That's the shit I don't get. Spending hours in the gym trying to sweat it out. Getting out and feeling the same way. Groundhog day, every fucking day. Man, this shit was just lame. I was trying to see the light. But got caught up in the dark. Talking to your friends, they don't even know the half. Or even a quarter. The bricks and mortar come tumbling down. Trying to fix what was broken. Bruising our brains with shit we're not solving. The pain was too much. And therapy only helps when you're open. So that was a segment of pure. Um, I, I think people will agree with me um, when I say that if you had just the lyrics on their own, they'd be very powerful. But if you removed the lyrics and just kept the tune, you'd be like, that's still a fucking great tune. And I think when <laughs> you can you. then, you know, when you then combine those, um, it's absolutely, I, I absolutely love it. Um, another one I'm just going to keep growing on, and Sweet Lies, another great tune. And I want to talk about this more from a mental health perspective because yeah, I, I'm kind of loath to to even bring this the subject up now at times because I feel that it's it's very tasteless and crass to try and shoehorn um, a subject such as mental health issues into a conversation at every opportunity that you get, and I I try and avoid it unless it's ultimately relevant. And I feel here it is relevant, obviously, as we've discussed in your. And your music and your songwriting. So in Sweet yeah. Lies, there's a line which says, and I swear to God, therapy's an angel when it ain't going well. Yeah. Um, which which resonated with me as well. I mean, what have your experiences been with therapy? I know you saw you saw a hypnotherapist. Was it yeah. Mandy, her name was? Yeah, Maminda, yeah. She was amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was just... The first session I ever had with therapy, the, the biggest... Like it was the feeling of just speaking openly about how you feel. My whole life bottling everything up to that point and then having that mm -hmm. release was literally like like sex. It was like losing my virginity. It was like literally the feeling was just magical and I was just like, wow, you could feel like that from just speaking, just talking mm -hmm. about what's going on in your mind um, was the biggest thing for me and I was like... Fuck, and then I went in, uh, as soon as that happened, I went and spoke to all of my friends. I was like, dude, you need to have therapy. It was, it was, to me, it was like the new craze. You know, I was like, fucking hell, yeah. this is amazing. You need to go and do this. Da, 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 da. Where I know I had so many friends who were broken and they suffered so much from just the fact that they needed to have a simple conversation with someone. Um, I was blessed at the time. The, uh, the, uh, Malminda, she, she offered to help me because she was a friend of a friend and I was really suffering. And I was at the time I had no money. I was living in this crack house, you know, I was going through all this stuff. Um, and to be honest, without that, I would have been, I would have suffered so much more. And I don't know how much I could have like done. Take, I was like, I was suicidal, you know, I was, I was in a really tough place in my head. Um, and that was, that was huge for me. You know, it was huge. Um, and I would, highly recommend it to any person human in the world that feels a little bit you know who, who has this lingering feeling that eventually builds up to something that's more and it could be mm -hmm. anything you know it could be from losing your dog it can from be losing a friend someone letting you down you know it's it, there's no, you like i said you can't you can't gauge and say i've been, i've suffered more because this has happened in my life and i've mm -hmm. suffered you, you, it doesn't work like that it really doesn't people are like oh, i've had a hard life bro. i'm like yeah cool that person's had a, you, is, there's no there's no hierarchy yeah. I'm at this level or that level doesn't matter 
I think you nailed it there by saying there's no hierarchy. Um, yeah. I suppose experience through life as well. Like you, so your mate Perry said to you on a yeah. video growing up, you don't even know that you're going through mental health issues. You just get on with it. Yeah. Then there comes a time where it hits you and you realise, I suppose that time is when you just can't deal with it any further. Um, you know, yeah. we, we, I suppose we're conditioned or we're just taking part in society, which back then, I exactly. mean, we're talking the last... Now, obviously, the last few years, great strides have been made, but in the 90s and 2000s, and even up to about 2016, it was all very much just, it was never discussed, was it? It's, it's kept quiet. Toxic masculinity. Just lit, like, I, my dad didn't die, uh, my dad didn't cry at my brother's funeral, you know? And for me, I was just like, I just, yeah. I was just like, what? I was, I was as a kid, it's like, how has this happened, you know? Mm. Um, and just being around the behaviors in my life, with the, the the men that are just hard men, you know, like a lot of my family have involved in crime and and always been the big man, you know, and it's just like for me to then grow up and be like, I don't want to be the big man, you know, I like I don't care about all those things that they care about, you know, I don't care about fear, I don't care about scaring someone, I don't care about intimidating someone, and it was hard because I had all of that in me. I was I was very angry when I was younger because I didn't know how to communicate. So I didn't have the language, you know, I, I kind of mm -hmm. knew how yeah. I felt, but I didn't have the language to express myself. And I guess with growing up and meeting good people, like I said, I was fortunate enough to meet good people who eventually had an everlasting effect on me, um, mm -hmm. especially with therapy and stuff like that. And, and through the music industry as well. There's a, there's a lot of talk about how many shit people are in the industry. And yeah, there are a lot of shit people, but there are a lot of good people with good intentions, you know. Um, and yeah, I was, I was very blessed to to come across a few of them. I think to pick up just on what you were saying there about your dad not crying at your brother's funeral um, yeah. and the whole being a hard man and I don't feel emotion, I don't feel fear. I feel like it is worth even explicitly saying right now that for anybody who, I don't know, doubts whether they have any strength or doubts whether they are quote unquote a man, I would say. Yeah. To be a strong person or to, to have strength or to be strong doesn't mean that fear is not in your life. It means that in spite of fear that you, you continue to push on. It doesn't exactly. mean that, you know, to be a strong person doesn't mean you've never struggled to make it through a day or that you've not been on the floor for weeks or months. I think the fact that anybody's still here means that they've carried on in spite of that. So that then in turn is, is, is real strength. And that I suppose it's just, yeah, it's... It's up to us, I mean, societally, to be redefining what strength and, and bravery is because it, it certainly is not the fucking absence of fear. That's not strength. That's being a robot or, or a psychopath. Agreed. Totally agreed. I mean, for men, it's always hard because our, our dads are our heroes and, like, and our brothers. And, you know, if you gr I grew up with, with two older brothers who used to beat the life out of me and they were feared, you know, my mm. brothers were feared. They, they were feared in our area. They were feared by other people. So I saw that and I used to be like, oh, yeah. you know, that is that, the, is that the thing to do? But it's like you now as an, as an older man, I look around me at the people that were feared when they're younger. They all want to be motivational speakers. Now they've all been to prison and yeah. come out. They are all, they're all dustmen or postmen. The people that people used to shun when we were younger be like, you're the fucking postman or you're the dustman. What are you doing? We're selling drugs. We're making money. And now it's just like, it's just so humbling. If mm -hmm. we, you know, it's like stepping forward 10 years being like, where are you going to be at 10 years in your life? Um, 
and it's uh, and now like the, my friends that were involved in drugs, they all work as delivery drivers or they work in factories and warehouses because they didn't. We where I was, I left school really young, so I was lucky to go on and do music and stuff. But they didn't have that mm -hmm. the luxury of having a goal and having the determination to. They just approached every day as it come. Um, and yeah, and, and a lot of them didn't have father figures, which is a big thing as well, you know. A lot of my friends were brought up by their mum or their nan and granddad, you know. And I guess having a strong person in your life, strong in the way that it's uh, like they communicate with you and they and they show you love and it's all done in the right way. And a lot of us just feared our dads and that, and that was the problem, you know. Mm -hmm. And it got all our love from my mum and was like, oh, mum, but mum's too busy doing a thousand, thousand things. To take it on to, I suppose, a, a lighter subject. Well, yeah, I suppose light, lighter is debatable, <laughs> depending on how people how people will view this. But your new EP, My Brutally Honest Experiences of Online Dating, I've, yeah. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> but let's let's talk about what, what motivated that, because that was from, from literally your experiences with online dating. So there's... Yeah. There's a few, but I mean, let's talk about the first track on it, Naked, which yeah. was your experiences on Tinder. What, yeah. why, why were you on um, dating sites? You know, what I've got a lot of, I think I find them very fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I find that 99% of the time they don't provide people what they're actually yeah. looking for. What were your yeah. motivations for using them? Uh, being insecure, wanting to be liked by a female because I was insecure. I didn't, I didn't like how I looked. I didn't, um, feel like I was appealing to someone if I went up to them in a bar. It was it was mm -hmm. more like a selfish ego thing, where I, yeah, I lacked real like confidence in myself as a man, as uh, as what I looked like, and I they didn't really have a lot of self love. And it was like I joined it to be like you know what I've I've invested so many t so much time into relationships before I was in a four year relationship, five year relationship, two year relationship, one year relationship, and I was just like. You know what? I've thrown everything at that. Now let's just try something a little bit different. Um, and at the time, I was yeah, I was low on so self esteem and confidence. I was like, it was it's quite sad actually when I look back at it. But it was it is what it is, and it I learned from it. But um, mm. yeah, it was just more about I would say trying to build me with confidence where I didn't have the confidence to do it in real life. You know? Yeah. Despite like, despite being on stage and playing in front of people and people telling me amazing yeah. all the time, it's just like that doesn't matter to me, you know. In in in, in like a dating social way, it's just like confidence isn't born from that. I, I yeah, I totally agree with you. Like confidence isn't born from from what people tell you. I think some people can't. Well, I don't know. I can't speak for anyone else, but I can speak for myself. And in part, I feel I can speak for you based on what you've said that. Someone can tell you you're amazing, you're amazing, you're amazing, you're amazing, you're amazing. But if you don't feel that and you don't believe it, it makes it makes no difference. It's like someone coming up to me and saying to me, "You're Australian, you're Australian, you're Australian, you're Australian." I'm like, I don't feel Australian. So <laughs> no matter no matter how many times you tell me it, it's not going to fucking change anything, mate. Yeah. Um. So you, uh, I'm quite interested in this one. What about the woman that you dated for six months and she transpired to have a very interesting um wow. private or job on the side what was the story there oh wow yeah so i mean really sad in a sense that she she was doing all of this stuff because she she was only 22 you know i was what was i 27 no yeah 
there was like a five year gap between us and um mm-hmm. and she, she bless her was like i think she was just ruled by money and greed she had no she come yeah. from a really good family and lived in like a nice part of the uk you know it was like she didn't want for anything so i guess it was just born out of greed and mm-hmm. that's what i saw anyway i didn't yeah she liked like nice things and had a nice car and all these things and i was like okay cool but you know what can you do you can't do anything with with, with dirty money you know it's like it's it's so short-lived the whole thing but the the, the, the darkest thing about that was the guy she was doing it with was really high up in the government. So they were like, they would, I don't know what they were doing the money, but they were making it clean somehow. And um, yeah, I, so, I, I, I'm sorry. I don't know if we even specified that she, she, you had been dating for six months and it transpired that she was working as a high class escort. Yeah. I sorry. don't know if we, we actually, I don't know if we yeah. actually said that, but yeah, sorry. Continue with yeah, the guy sorry. in the government. Yeah. She was, she was, uh, she was a high class escort and she was running the escort agency. Um, and yeah, at first when I found out a bit, I was like, "Ooh, like, how do I change the scale? How do I get her out of doing that?" She because I I liked her mm-hmm. enough, thought she was great. Um, and then I just it all kind of ev- like evolved into something that I I wasn't okay with. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just it's just a really dark world, and uh, all the girls that she was working with they're all in university paying tuition fees but they're pe- these guys are paying mm-hmm. a lot of money for these for this you know we're not talking like a 50 quid yeah yeah what, what but like these are like they were paying thousands oh, and thousands end. yeah thousands and yeah. thousands of pounds to to have a a date with this girl and then sleep with her and f- beyond that flying women to like crazy places just to have a night with them you know and these are like mm. married men who own big ass companies they're not no yeah. lower level managers at, at companies they're like that's what it was so dark i was just like no nah, i can't be a, i can't be a part of this this is just really really all i'm against and it's like i'm all about karma and i'm like that will really affect my karma and my, and my existence and mm. uh, the, the the thing i'm doing now is trying to get you out of it so you can go on to do your own thing in life and she was a really talented mm-hmm. singer you know she was really talented but she just was caught up with the wrong people. Yeah, I've seen people doing things that are questionable, and while everyone's entitled to do whatever they want, yeah, the motivation is always because I want to have nice things. I want, I mean, I want to have Gucci. I want to be flying business class. Yeah. I want to be going here, and it's like the, the minute that money and stuff becomes your main motivator, you're on a fucking slippery slope, and it's going to be very hard for you to. Yeah, take it off it. Sometimes you need to just let people, people do themselves. But not, not, not for me. I can't. Not something like that. Anyway. Um, yeah. Say I that, don't. I don't judge. But that's what I. But that's nah. what I said. My my view on that was just like, look, however you want to make money in life, you go and do that. But you need to realize like the huge emotional baggage that that comes with, right? And also mm-hmm. like, if you're a conscious person and you you have a good heart deep down. You, this will affect you in the long run, you know. I know the money's, it's a short-term thing and you get a couple of grand here, get a couple of grand there, but you can only do so much with that money. How many pairs of trainers can you buy? How many handbags can you buy? You know, you can't do anything more than that apart from pay your rent and have a few fucking pairs of nice shoes. I'm like, go to Primark, you spend a fiver on a pair of shoes. You know, they'll last yeah. the same amount of time. And you, <laughs> it's just, it, it, honestly, yeah, it was, uh, it was a learning curve for me as well because I, I, cu- I couldn't be like, I couldn't judge her because 
in my life I had done things that were as bad as that, you know, as a younger man. But I, I, I was fortunate yeah. enough to learn from them. But she was still in that life. Yeah, and you, the track "Sunshine" is about. I'd n- I'd never heard of this. You've got a track called "Sunshine" and it's about your experiences on the celebrity dating oh app called God. is it Raya or Raya? Raya Raya. Just depends if you're American or English. I had no idea. Now, how the user base cannot be that big? Or like, what's the criteria? Like, um, oh, I was on the front page of the local newspaper, therefore I have celebrity status. Or do you have to like prove in a do. certain way? Okay, so when I joined it, when I was on Raya the first time, it was if you were verified on on uh, Instagram and you had a certain amount of, I don't know, like newspapers or, or someone talking about you online, enough press. Yeah, yeah. And they, they would put it to a committee and then there'll be, I think, four or six people in the committee who choose if you'll get accepted into this thing, which was like, like you couldn't believe some of the people that were on there, like huge, huge celebrity stars that you're matching with and you can talk to. Are you are you um, are you willing to see any names or are you? Can yeah, you I mean, disclose? Like, who did I see on there? Cara Delevingne, Lily Allen, <laughs> fucking hell. Match with Demi Lovato, Kelly oh, Osbourne, yeah. like everyone, and and also you get the like the people that are like uh, models trying to like f- fuck their way to the top, the guys yeah. and the girls, you know. Um, so there was a lot of that. There's a, so much of that. It's all like, it's all status climbing. The whole thing is one status ladder. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, like you go in it and when I was in LA, I would log in when I'm in LA, I'm like, wow, this, this person's here or that person's here. And it's so superficial and like, oh God, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I didn't, it was, it's the devil really that, that, that app is the devil. Um, did you because, did you meet up with anybody? Yeah. Are you willing to disclose who you met up with? Nah, but that's <laughs> fair enough. Um, <laughs> but was no, there any was there any funny ones like any surprises? Were you like what? You like you're fucking? What are you doing on here? Yeah, everyone, everyone. You see, like top models and like just like singers and superstars. You know, and like I was watching, I can't remember what movie it was. There was a girl from the movie that was on there and I had matched with her and I was like, I'm literally watching your movie as I match with you on Raya and I could talk yeah. to you. And I was, I was just like, I can't remember her name. Not off the top of my head, but it, like this was, this was, was a year or so ago. Um, so for me, it's, just, it's so, and I'm just like, I'm this little ghetto kid from London in my head, now on this dating app, speaking to all these people who who see me as a, a verified tick and a person with followers on Instagram, that's how they're judging me. So it was it strangest experience of my life. I that's, that I've got so many thoughts in that. I mean, I could say all of this. I'm going like full Sigmund Freud. Yeah. And someday someone who uses it could be like, mate, it ain't that deep. But I think it shows, I don't know. Everybody, everybody wants love. And everybody yeah. wants connection. And I suppose if I look at it from a very rational way, maybe they're saying, well, if I meet someone who's who knows the industry and they knows the same pressures that, that we have to go through and the requirements for privacy and all of that, but then yeah. it's like, how much fucking validation do you need? That's it. And like, I was, How I, much validation do you actually need? 
for me it was like i said before i was approaching it from an insecure place i i i didn't feel like if i could get a cosign from these hot amazing actresses and da 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 but really all all, all it boils down to is they're probably as insecure as me or they they they're looking for yeah. validation as much as me it's like you're yeah. on the, you're on the movies you're like a top class model bloody bloody blah, blah, blah and i was just like rah it's maybe it's just not me everyone's suffering with this kind of yeah and but i suppose like if sorry on you go go on, go on i was going to say that i suppose although they're getting validation through magazines and social media and mm. uh, general public it's all very impersonal and it must become like a sort of white noise like millions of people but no distinct faces that you can actually tell from the crowd whereas if you're on the whole app then it's literally somebody i suppose they would maybe value their opinion i don't know yeah um, it's yeah it's a yeah it's a it's a funny one it just shows though the fragility of the of the human mind and the need for validation and for i don't know to feel wanted or the wee ego boost that yeah uh person x fancies me i can't believe it exists though i think that's fucking hilarious dude it's like yeah i have friends in america who are like super famous who who have been on it and they're like they all had the same experiences so and it's a lot of like there are people who are of status and stuff like that but as it's got bigger they've let mm. a lot more people in so you now have like rich old sleazy men who own companies and clubs and they're in there trying to get yeah. their their foot in the door with a few of these people and it it can then becomes like a networking slash dating shagging status driven monster um yeah and it's like it's it's just too much i like yeah man i think the um the minute that something i, I don't know the concept of love and romance when it becomes turned into mo- like a, a commodity or yeah. like LinkedIn, then fucking count me out, Dude, man. Exactly. I'd rather be by myself. Exactly. You might as well be on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, horrendous. Um, I, why? I mean, I've got it because I'm not. I don't always push for like the salacious chat and stuff, but I just yeah. feel that we're sitting on a gold mine. So, I mean, is there any information or any experiences you could share while concealing the identity, or maybe slightly hinting at the identity of, of one of the people because you know, no, you've got I, to give the fans what they want. I mean, I could, uh, I won't say names, but I could tell you like uh, some crazy things that ha- happened, like people asking me to like shit and piss on them and like on the first date <laughs> and like, and like break into, like break into their house and, and play out a scene that Jesus Christ. Play out a scene that I'm breaking into their house with a knife and a crowbar. Like it, the, I guess it's like, <laughs> It's, it's, it's like, so, they're so desensitized. A lot of these people are so desensitized. And I was just mm-hmm. like, this, this is just too much, man. It's like, that is wild. It, yeah. they, talk about being typecast. They've seen that you come from Southall and then they've just went, right, this guy will know what to do. He'll know his way around a crowbar <laughs> and a knife and break it. <laughs> breaking into somebody's house i'm like how how dare you i play cricket and winner now yeah yeah um the uh, that's so funny like i'm imagining yeah. some of the people that must be on that i assume there must just be like a an unwritten rule of confidentiality yeah you um, can't take screenshots on there that's one thing if you take screenshots on there you can you get banned um mm. and you get chopped off the app and yeah it's it's i guess how it 
how it works with the with the with with the level of people they're, they're more like you'll get their number and then then talk to them you know and then yeah kind of works like that but it's it's so th- fickle and i mean yeah it's it, it i'm very blessed i have an amazing woman in my life now who's mm-hmm. just like just incredible so call, call it a shit call her a civilian is she a civilian civilian call her a civilian I'm joking. I'm joking, but it's just like it's a, it's quite funny when you go to call just a, an ordinary member of the public. Oh, no, as yeah, if no. that's all they are. She, she's a fr- <laughs> she's a friend I've known for for five six years, and um, yeah, since since coming off the dating apps and going through all of that, yeah, just kind of superficial stuff. It, it just reminded me of what's real in life, and and that was absolutely what was that's the lesson I learned from that. You would want to maintain that that connection to normality, and well, I suppose I have to apologise to the. The lovely woman in your life. When I talk about the the last track, the Dean Street Express. Oh um, my god! Yeah. F- for anyone who's unaware, so Dean Street is a street in Soho in London, and I believe there's a sexual health clinic there. Yeah. Um. Many so trips. I take it the the yeah the uh, the dating app thing didn't. I suppose it, it wound up there, shall we say? Well, I didn't. I never had an STD, so I was quite lucky. All but, right. Um, okay. Yeah, but it was more the fear of of having one and getting getting it like involved in these crazy nights and just like cocaine binging and drinking and clubbing and waking up naked in weird houses, waking up like in strange places that kind of I just sounds like my tenth birthday party. <laughs> um... <laughs> I'm yeah, only, no, I'm only joking. My my eleventh no. birthday party, I wasn't an animal, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, it was just a, a lot of like, yeah, just being a mess, just being an absolute mess in my life, not really knowing what I wanted, not really. It was just, it was just pure escapism, you know, pure like sex, drug, mm. and drugs, and rock and roll. And I was like, it was all self harming. It was all a form of self harming. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, a short-term pursuit for pleasure and enjoyment. Actually, if it's more, it seems to me, like a, people wanting to detach from reality. So instead yeah. of um, confronting and 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 changing reality, it's more just well, let's disconnect from that for a while, and it, yeah. it can become a bit of a a bit of a haze. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. Yeah, um, and in hindsight, it's just like a, it was just a, something that I wanted to talk about, and. Yeah, that's why I wrote the EP. And here we are now. It's in your music, so people can hear that mm. um, on Spotify. It is called "My Brutally Honest Experiences of Online Dating." Yeah. But I would say, go on to to anybody listening. I mean, as you'll have heard from the tracks, whether it's on YouTube or Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you listen to your music, go and listen to to what Slang have created because it's just incredible. And in terms of thank you for you personally, musically what's coming up like what what do you expect or what are you what are you going for um i've uh, i've got a single called jenny which is um just about uh it's a song about how lost we are as a young generation or how lost we've been um which is just yeah it's it's a cool song i like it the verses in the pre and it's got a cool chorus um so that's going to be the next single from slang and my Kaleidoscopes project that I do with, with Yearboy, um, we just signed a record deal in America and uh, obviously we produced and wrote the, the Joel Corey record that's at number one right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a lot going on with that as well. So just managing time because the slang stuff I kind of write in a dark room by myself, weirdly, you mm-hmm. know, and the Kaleidoscopes is more like 
pop music with a meaning and and a little bit more uh, soul to, compared to what's on the radio. Um, so yeah, I'm just tr managing my time and and a lot of we got a new single for Kaleidoscopes coming out on the 30th no the 30th of July um, and yeah just just working hard we're building a studio in Soho as well um, to nice. uh, in, in in the centre of London which is going to be amazing for for all the music that's coming and um just staying productive it's we had a number one song so it's now time to go double as hard you know not 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 yeah. dwell on that mm -hmm. good attitude to have it's in the past well all the links to to the music that dan's just mentioned is in the episode notes uh once again dan thanks for your time mate you've been very generous you've been a great laugh very open very honest uh, i think people will enjoy it thank you mate it's been a pleasure uh, and to you listening thanks again uh join us next time for another episode of blethered Cheers, and I'll see you soon. Cheers. Blethered was written, recorded, and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. From The Big Light Studio.